Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Tyler Henritzi. Tyler is Senior Managing Director and Head of Real Estate Acquisitions at Blackstone. Tyler has worked on over $100 billion of transactions in his career, including some of the largest buyouts in history. Tyler, welcome to World of DAS. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, Blackstone Real Estate takes kind of a thematic approach to investing. I know over the past decade and a half, you guys have acquired over a billion square feet of industrial warehousing, kind of anticipating this rise of e-commerce. What interesting assets are you guys investing in today that support like a trend that you see over the next decade? Maybe to take a step back for a second, I think it'd be helpful to talk about the evolution in our business in answering that question. And if I looked at our business going back 10 or 15 years ago, we were really investing in episodic, opportunistic deals that really had no rhyme or reason. It was an asset or a business that was disjointed, maybe distressed, and we would invest. And it would be an office deal one day and a hospitality deal the next day. Really coming out of the global financial crisis, as our business began to scale, we really did take on much more of a thematic approach, as you described. And the simplest way that I explain it to people is we're really trying to identify large demographic or technological shifts in human behavior, and then asking ourselves, what's the real estate corollary to that? So you mentioned logistics. Early in 2011 or 12, we started to key in on the rise of e-commerce, and we asked ourselves, what are going to be the knock-on effects to our real estate business? And we identified the industrial theme as a huge strategy, and that has been probably one of our biggest global thematic bets that we've made over the last 10 years. But there's a handful of others as well. We have been very active in the housing sector, in particular, the for rent space, the multifamily space across the Southeast and Sunbelt. We've seen these sort of migratory patterns in terms of where people want to work and live. A lot of times that's a shift to slightly more affordable, slightly warmer weather states. In some cases, there's slightly more business-friendly tax environments. And at the same time, in addition to sort of the consumer behavior, are you just trying to figure out, okay, where are the U-Hauls going? Are going to go by there? or That's it. I mean, I think that's part of it. We look at what are changes in terms of where college graduates want to move and live. We're looking at U-Haul data in terms of changes in U-Haul data. We looked at this coming out of the global financial crisis. We've looked at it coming out of the pandemic. But in addition to residential housing, a couple other sort of thematic themes that you might not correlate back to real estate you think about content creation, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, well, how does that relate to real estate? Well, all of those shows get produced in different places. A lot of them get produced in sound stages. Those sound stages are largely concentrated in a few markets, LA, New York, Toronto, but also in places like Georgia, where you've got pretty heavy tax incentives. We've built up a business that exclusively focuses on owning the real estate in which all of these shows that we like to watch are filmed. So that would be another because I imagine they're selling their time on the soundstage by the day or by the hour or something like that. Are you also operating it and trying to get these, like, in some ways, it's kind of like a event space business or something like that, or are you just owning it and then licensing it to an operator? We largely own the real estate and lease it out. The business used to be, you'd lease it out usually for the period of time that it took to shoot a show. That's evolving as some of the big studios want to control studio space and key markets longer term. We're not providing much in the way of services other than in some instances, we might provide equipment rentals to the shows, but they're coming in generally with their crews and their bodies to sort of put on the productions. And we're a typical rental then is like three months to make the show or what's a typical show that they're having? There's certain markets that cater more towards movies, certain markets that cater more towards television. But I would say it used to be that six months might be a typical lease for a movie or show. But what's happening, because these studios are so prolific, they're actually leasing space in some cases for as long as 10 years. To oh, God. So then they just do show after show after show or, okay, makes exactly. sense. Exactly. I can keep going. But one more thematic theme that we were early into was what we call life science office space. So if you think about everybody that's created all these mRNA vaccines, the backbone of that is a lot of research done out of very specialized labs. Well, those labs from the outside look a lot like office buildings 
but the technical specs are very different. They need higher air handling requirements to move the air in with greater frequency because they're doing very high precision testing. The floors need to handle a greater weight loads because of some of the equipment. And those clusters of lab office space tend to be in markets where you've got a real concentration of PhD type talent. Think Cambridge, Massachusetts, think South San Francisco, think Seattle, and a little bit in San Diego as well. I imagine these are also immune to work from home trends and stuff like that. You need to be in the office to do these life science types of things. You made a great point there. I mean, what I'm not referring to is we're not investing in real estate that caters towards call centers where people can put a headset on and do it from home. You can't do specialized testing in your living room. You can't film the next episode of your favorite Netflix show at home. These require people to be together and in person, but they also tap into a huge research theme and trend in and around life science, which we were doing even before COVID, obviously coming out of COVID, that business has accelerated. Same thing with sort of media and content creation. But again, I almost describe these as fairly basic themes. These are not novel. It seems like a lot of people know about them, but somehow you guys are still kind of the leaders out there. What we're really trying to do, and I think where we've differentiated ourselves, is trying to pick up on these themes earlier than others, and then pivot within those themes as demand amongst the tenants evolves within those sectors. So industrial is a great example. We just started blindly buying warehouses in 2011 and 12 because we felt that one package that gets delivered to somebody at their home needs to be repositioned about three or four times compared to when it used to just get shipped straight to a store and you'd buy it from a store. So very simplistically, we said that means more demand for warehouse space. Well, fast forward 10 years later, that's about the least kept secret in real estate. (laughs) Warehouse space is in short demand. But within that sector, I think we've been ahead of the curve in pivoting. We started buying older warehouses very close in to dense urban areas five or six years ago when everybody still wanted what I would describe as the very large format mega distribution facilities that tended to be in more suburban locations. We sort of saw what was happening and we saw delivery times that Amazon wanted to take from three days to two days to one day to same day. And we realized in order to do that, they needed real estate that was much closer into these urban environments. Now, prior to 2008, Blackstone was, I guess, more of an opportunistic buyer and was still doing incredibly well. And then you said kind of like post-financial crisis, you guys have been more thematic. Was it the financial crisis, which was a catalyst or was there some sort of catalyst that like really changed your thinking like, hey, we're not going to be able to make as much money being opportunistic anymore. We need to be more thematic. I think it was driven by two things. We really wanted to develop real sector expertise within the places in which we wanted to invest. And we also saw coming out of the global financial crisis that not all real estate reacted the same way to the global financial crisis. Pre the global financial crisis, a lot of real estate was very correlated to GDP, industrial rents, office rents, hotel rates, very correlated to GDP. And therefore, a lot of people built their real estate portfolios and they said, okay, we want 20% office, 20% multifamily, 20% hospitality. And it was sort of a diversified portfolio. We saw early coming out of the global financial crisis that industrial rents, which had historically been correlated almost one-to-one with GDP growth. GDP was growing at 3%. Industrial rents would grow at 3%. There started to be a huge divergence there. And when we saw that, we started to ask ourselves why. And I think it kind of led us to conclude that pre the global financial crisis, I think a lot of people thought that technology either didn't really have a big impact on real estate or it would kind of impact all real estate the same. And I think we questioned that hypothesis and started saying, no, 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 no. There's going to be certain asset classes and certain formats of real estate that technology is a huge tailwind for and others, it's a huge headwind. I can't think of a better analogy or real life example than a mall relative to a warehouse. I mean, goods literally were leaving the mall as an expensive delivery mechanism to get goods to a consumer and showing up in warehouses. So you can call one a retail asset and another an industrial asset, but I would almost argue that a lot of logistics facilities today are modern retail centers. They are the 
delivery mechanism to get goods from the supplier's hand into the consumer's hand. And we started looking at the world and each asset class through that lens and asking ourselves, will this asset class benefit from big technological or demographic shifts or struggle? We essentially said, we're going to not just de-emphasize, we're going to almost completely ignore the sectors that have those secular headwinds and overweight the sectors that have the opposite, and then go much deeper in a smaller number of strategies and themes and build out real operational expertise within them. For the real estate things that have these headwinds that are coming, is there any way to make money through a short? Or is it just like, hey, you just want to rebalance your portfolio and get out of that stuff? Most of our business is a long, lonely business where we're buying real estate and managing and operating it. And we generally make all the operational decisions in and around that asset. The only way to really effectuate a short would be through the public markets, shorting securities, which- I uh, got it. Okay. A lot of people do is not a big part of our business today. Certainly people do that and have been successful at doing that. What about when you think of like, there's certain regulatory risks that come in real estate. I know in San Francisco in 2020, implemented a transfer tax where you have to pay 5.5% of a sale once you sell. And if you had bought before 2020, you may have not factored in that 5.5% into your IRR. How do you think about these evolving regulatory risks when you're dealing with real estate? It's a great question. And I think in general, we try to think about which sectors or strategies or jurisdictions have higher regulatory risk than others. Not surprisingly, in a lot of these municipalities that are looking for tax revenue, sometimes it's easier to impose taxes on commercial landlords than it is on residential landlords. Buildings don't vote, individuals do. And certain states lean a little more progressive in terms of their regulation, whether it be around things like transfer taxes or mortgage recording taxes or even regulations in and around housing. So I think we have to take that into account. Anything that's residential that involves where somebody lives. There's, a, I think, heightened sensitivities. And I think that we've got to be mindful in terms of how we operate, that we bring sort of best-in-class operational standards to bear in those regards. When you're buying a warehouse or you're buying a storage facility, there generally is not a lot of regulatory pressure. Politicians don't seem to be waking up every day and saying, geez, we need to regulate where you store your leftover gym equipment in your storage facility. So there are times when the lack of regulatory hurdles makes those asset classes easier to navigate and invest in. Conversely, there are sectors that prove more challenging. You think about things like senior housing. It makes sense. You've got elderly people living in facilities. You think about post-COVID environment. There's a lot of sensitivities there. There's more regulation. You've got to take into account that uncertainty in terms of how you think about the risk profile of investing in those type of sectors or geographies. Wide range in terms of regulation across geographies, both within the US and outside. Now, there's certainly a debate of how much we're going to move to a more remote first environment, but I think everyone will agree that 2023 will be far more remote than 2019 and how much more remote. I think we can have a debate about it. SafeGraph is a remote first company. How does the investment strategy play into that? Because you may be a little bit less weighted to office. You might be more weighted to fun restaurants in Nashville because maybe everyone's moving to Nashville. How do you think about that? I certainly don't want to speculate on how quickly people will return to the office, especially for a lot of functions that are easily performed and done in a remote setting. So you've heard me talk about a lot of strategies and themes that we think have great secular tailwinds behind them. What I'm not banging the table about is a big bet on what I would describe as commodity B office buildings that if you walked the halls, you would see cube after cube of people largely doing isolated individual work that can be easily done at home. And I think there are certain functions, whether it be call center functions or accounting functions or finance functions that are very easily done at home. And beyond that, I think there's going to be a bit of a Swiss cheese element where people say, okay, there is an element of collaboration and connectivity that we might want to foster in an in-person setting. And the way we're going to configure our space is going to be different as a result. It's not going to be as oriented around individual work production, which I think we're learning can be done in a lot of different places. So 
I think our office strategy today is largely premised on some of these forms of office real estate that really require people to be together in person. And beyond the lab office space and beyond the studio space, there are companies today that when they're looking to bring people back in the office are saying to themselves, okay, we used to have a fine office, but it wasn't particularly inspiring. If we want to get people back in the office, even if it's two days, three days, four days a week, whatever it may be, they're really leaning in, I think, to the investment in the quality of real estate they're buying. They're favoring newer buildings. They're favoring buildings that are heavily amenitized so that there's multiple hooks to get people to come in. Buildings are putting in small healthcare clinics within the building. There's a company now called Eden Health that essentially provides primary care sort of micro clinics within office buildings. That's awesome. Which if you think about it from the employee perspective, they're kind of saying to themselves, wait a second, I don't need to commute into the office to do some conference calls and some work that I can do at home. But if there's a collaborative element to the job, if there's an element of training, culture building, also it's where my gym is and it's where my health provider is, that starts to create an added incentive for that employee to come into the office some number of days a week. And we're seeing a real divergence in terms of rental rates amongst what I would describe as modern, newer buildings that are heavily amenitized in best in class locations and commodity office buildings that are older struggling because that demand is just not there today. People are essentially upgrading in terms of the quality of office experience they're providing to their tenants in the event they are trying to get people back. We're moving to a very interesting environment where interest rates are changing. There's a lot of uncertainty. When you're doing buyouts, I imagine you use a lot of leverage. You have to get a lot of debt. How are you managing this type of uncertainty? How do you manage the lenders? Is there some sort of mutual understanding that you guys work through as you guys move into times that are more difficult? How do you think about that? Yeah, good question. We typically are a leveraged buyer. Depending on the strategy, we'll borrow between 50% and 70% on an acquisition. We spend a lot of time on the front end making sure that we have got term to our financing, five years, seven years, 10 years depending on the business plan that would allow us to presumably ride through any uncertainty and volatility. So we bought several businesses before the global financial crisis. EOP was a very large $40 billion. Yeah. That was one of the biggest acquisitions in history at the time, right? It was one of the largest LBOs ever at the time. And after we bought it, we sold some real estate down, but fortunately we had structured a financing package that had no covenants, that had no tripwires, It had a lot of optionality to us to make sure we were guaranteed the full term that we had bargained for on the front end, regardless of what happened to the operating performance of those assets. Even if there is a downturn, we can at least move through our investment strategy, our investment horizon, et cetera. That's right. I mean, listen, we're not borrowing for 30 years, but typically what we are doing is we're setting up financing structures that are both non-recourse to us. So if there is a problem with one individual investment, The lender only has the ability to go after that one individual investment. We also, like I said, create the flexibility so that if the operating performance at the asset level deteriorates for some short intermediate period of time, we can live to fight another day. We're not in a situation where the banks are foreclosing on us. We also maintain very sizable reserves within our funds such that we can fund interest shortfalls and make the necessary capital improvements for investments, even when times get tough. And I think we've learned that you never want to be a forced seller in real estate. You want to have dry powder and have capital when there's these moments of dislocation, because at the depths of COVID, at the depths of the global financial crisis, nobody wants to lend to you. Nobody wants to provide equity capital. If you don't have committed capital standing by ready to take advantage of those opportunities or to protect your own portfolio, you will be a forced seller. And we'd rather be the person on the other side of that trade. This is like kind of a Seth Klarman margin of safety kind of way of thinking through this. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing we've learned too is you oftentimes, if you own quality real estate, the other thing we've seen is that you ride through a downturn and you're holding on for dear life and it looks pretty grim. And then all of a sudden the clouds clear and the sun comes out again. And you think, let's think 2012 or 2011. Okay. The clouds have cleared, financing markets are stabilizing. There's a little bit of capital back in the system. There's a lot of people that sort of, they say, okay, I'm going to sell now. And what we've learned is if you own great real estate, this isn't true for marginal real, but if you own great real estate, 
resist that urge to sell the moment the clouds clear. That's the beginning innings of a new cycle. That's where you're starting to see the double digit growth per year or something. That's where you're really starting to see the fundamentals kick back up again. I think we have done a nice job of being patient and when we own great real estate, really maximizing the windows in which we sell, certainly not selling in those moments of real distress, but also not selling day one when the clouds clear again, because that usually is the beginning of a asset value appreciation cycle. You guys historically also have done a lot of stuff in kind of broadly the hotel space. You bought Hilton in 2007. You guys did Motel 6. You did the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. They're obviously very, very different types of assets. What have you learned from these, let's say, broadly hotel types of things? First of all, I would say everyone, when you talk about hospitality, brings their own experiences to bear. You say the Cosmopolitan and people have a reaction. They've stayed there. They've wanted to stay there. They've heard about it. When you say Motel 6, people have a very different reaction. The first thing I say to people is don't confuse the user experience with the ownership experience. McDonald's might not be your first choice in terms of where you want to go get lunch, but it's a great business. And conversely, there are some very high-end hospitality assets that are amazing to stay at, but can sometimes be tricky businesses. I can guarantee you a very easy way to go bankrupt in the hotel business is to buy a Four Seasons asset, charge 150 bucks a night. You'll have five-star reviews on TripAdvisor <laughs> and you'll have the happiest customers on planet earth. You'll be broke in six months. So the first thing I've learned is don't conflate the user experience with the owner experience. I've also learned that there's a lot of people in New York that represent a very small customer base that don't necessarily represent the broad base of the meat of the demand in the hospitality world. But what we've really tried to do, I would say, is it's been a bit of a barbell approach. I think about it as we either want to own hotel assets that you and I would say by name. We own the Grand Wailea in Hawaii. When people go there, they don't say, oh, I'm going to Oahu. They say, I'm going to stay at the, I'm sorry, in Maui, the Grand Wailea in Maui. When people stay at the Cosmopolitan, they say they're staying at the Cosmopolitan. You're selling more than just a room. And as a result, you're able it's to a charge real brand. a brand. It's a real brand. There's a real experience, et cetera. The flip side of that is if you're just in the bed business where you're selling a bed, you better be really honest and how you operate that asset and be really maniacal about providing a clean room and a very simple experience without too much labor and without too much frills to be competitive in that space. So we have tended to focus on the very, what we call the select service end of the spectrum, which tends to be high margin, high free cash flow conversion, very streamlined operationally, or we focus on assets that, again, really are selling more than just a room. It's an experience. The Cosmo would be a great example of that in Vegas. I think the in-between is where you get tricky, where it's a full-service asset that has got some labor. It's got a crummy restaurant. It's an older dated room experience. You're kind of neither, you're betwixt and between a little bit. I think that's a dangerous place to be. I think it's also where Airbnb can eat your lunch because you think a place like New York and someone's like, well, I don't, I don't need your crummy hotel restaurant. I just want to be in Gramercy or I want to be in Midtown and I, I can stay in an apartment and I don't need all the frills. So I think you got to be really honest with yourself as to what you are. And then the last thing I would say is that, and we were very successful with this in Hilton, is the management and franchise business is a great business. And it was really what made Hilton a great investment for us was the growth in that asset light management and franchise business where you're not owning the real estate, but you're licensing your brand or managing hotels on behalf of someone else. And increasingly, those businesses, Hilton is one of them, are really, I would describe as technology-powered distribution brand engines. I mean, that's really what their businesses are today. They've largely sold off their real estate. Those are great businesses as well. Now, sometimes you're a buyer, but of course, you're a private equity firm. You have to be a seller too. And you famously sold the Waldorf Astoria to a Chinese investment firm for about $2 billion. And you've described this as one of the more challenging transactions of your career. Was it challenging because it was like a cross-border deal or what made it so challenging? It was challenging for a couple of reasons. It was a buyer that we did not have a long and deep relationship with. They were somewhat unknown. So there were some questions as to their credibility and their ability to perform. And 
their team almost exclusively spoke Mandarin, which was probably the biggest challenge for me. It was an incredibly complex deal. So we were essentially selling the Waldorf Astoria to this investment group. Their business plan was to convert two-thirds of the building to condominiums. Part of what Hilton wanted to do was maintain a new high-end renovated Waldorf in the same location, but it would shrink in size. That would represent about a quarter of the asset base. They were going to engage Hilton to manage that asset on a go-forward basis, the hotel component. They needed Hilton to operate the hotel on an intermediate period of time while they created their plans. Get them improved. I think there was like five or six governing documents that we had to negotiate, a transition services agreement, a management agreement, a franchise agreement, the purchase and sale agreement. I mean, there was a lot going on here to navigate all in Chinese. And that was tricky with a buyer that we didn't have a ton of experience with. So there was a young lady on my team who was an associate who was our translator she did an amazing job and I think really grew up a lot in that transaction, but she really, we could not have done that deal without her help and support and the Hilton team's help and support, but that made it very tricky. What'd you learn from that? Like for deals going forward, is it just a one-off? It's hard to learn anything or is there some takeaway you can take? I said to somebody, it was a painful and unique process, but it was also a unique price. They were at a number that was incredibly compelling at the time. The New York hotel market was seeing a lot of supply. Fundamentals were challenging and it was worth it. I look at it and say, in our world, sometimes both on the buy and the sell, people shy away from real complexity and situations that are really hairy. And I think there have been situations where we have created a lot of value just because we've done the hard work. We haven't taken any more risk necessarily in certain instances. You think about on the buy side, navigating through a complex bankruptcy, I'd rather do a lot of hard work to make more money than necessarily take a lot more risk to make more money. And so I think we have done a number of large complex deals that require an enormous amount of horsepower and human capital and labor. But I would argue we have not intrinsically taken nearly that much risk in terms of what the actual businesses that we're buying. There was just complexity navigating to get there. We've generated opportunistic returns in some instances by not really taking on a lot of opportunistic risk, just doing the hard work. My lesson is that's a smart way to invest in my opinion. You mentioned like you have to win these deals. These are somewhat competitive deals that you're not the only buyer out there who's looking at these things. And there's obviously many ways to win. One is just to pay the most. (laughs) But one of the things that Blackstone is known for is also just moving super fast and winning deals on speed. And a lot of times a seller is going to want some sort of a surety. And is there some sort of way you guys have mechanized that somehow to move so quickly? Absolutely. I mean, there's a number of things. I mean, at a high level, and we tell this to our investors all the time, we're trying to take advantage of our scale in every way possible. We're trying to take advantage of it in terms of focusing on larger deals that are inherently less competitive because they require much larger checks. We're trying to take advantage of our scale in terms of the access and resources that we have on the ground and in the field to collect real-time rental rate data so that we can move quickly. We lean on our lender relationships to get better financing because of our scale. We utilize our skill to bring in the best resources operationally to lead a lot of these businesses or assets once we own them. But fundamentally, if you think about how we've organized ourselves, we've really created a system that is designed to go after these large opportunities and move very, very quickly. The building blocks that allow us to do that are a real consistency in terms of the senior leadership team. A lot of us have worked together for 20 plus years. A lot of consistency in terms of some of the external advisors that we work with on a regular basis. We've had the same law firm, the same accounting team. We've got some of the same property consultants. And we've almost thought about our business from the perspective of like a systems engineer in terms of not only how do you scale it, but how do we make sure as we scale, we can move just as fast or quicker than we were before. Some of this relates even to how we collate data across our different portfolio companies and feed it back up to our acquisitions team. So we've got really precise, real-time insights into what's happening in different markets. And then the last one is somewhat financial, but a lot of these processes, people are hesitant to spend money 
chasing a large opportunity. You got to spend real dollars from a due diligence perspective before you have any guarantees if the deal is yours or not. So what we're kind of known for is a lot of times what'll happen is somebody's selling a business and they'll run a first round and that'll whittle things down from 15 interested parties to five and then a second round and that'll whittle it down to three and then a best and final round. And usually people pace their due diligence expenses commensurate with that. They don't spend a lot in the first round. They just sort of lob a number in. What we really do is we'll show up at a first round bid and say, here's our number. We're done with our work. We can sign a contract in 10 days. And we need these three wow. pieces okay. of confirmatory. So the number is, hits a certain number in their head. They might just do it because why wait the other six months to go through all the other rounds or something? Correct. Yeah. And you know, maybe it's not six months, maybe it's two or three months, but the certainty of having a buyer like Blackstone. And the other thing I think we've done too is we've taken a long-term approach in terms of how we manage some of these relationships. I mean, there are times in that 10-day period where something comes up and it's a little bit of a blip to your underwriting. And you might be justified in going back to the seller and saying, hey, listen, we need a price cut of 2% or 3%. We rarely do that because we sort of view ourselves reputationally as we want to be the preferred buyer that when we tell somebody we're done, we mean it. And you can't abuse that. And so we'll spend, in some cases, millions of dollars before others will spend much at all, bring the full weight of our machine to the table. And people are like, kind of blown away. They're like, you're done. And we're like, we're done. And by the way, here's a draft of a contract that we're ready to sign. And I think it's that type of wedge that we're able to drive between ourselves and our competition that it's really hard for others to do that. I mean, there are instances where people see us show up in a competitive process and we'll ask the bankers or the advisors, is Blackstone really participating here? And are they really interested? And we've heard examples where people sort of say, all right, we're going to go focus elsewhere because they don't sort of want to compete against the full weight of the machine we're able to bring to the table. We lose plenty of situations and we've got some great competitors out there as well. So I don't want to make it sound like this is easy, but I think this is all the things we're trying to stack up to create what is still just a marginal edge versus our competitors. One thing you just said that I don't think I appreciate until this conversation was, okay, so you've got a deal team. And the way I always thought it was because like, it's this Blackstone employee deal team. But what you just said, which I thought was interesting is actually the deal team is like many, many more people than that, maybe three X larger, because it includes all these different lawyers from multiple law firms. It includes these accountants, maybe includes a consulting firm that you're hiring to help you do due diligence, maybe some bankers that you're bringing on, et cetera. So the team is much bigger. And if you have consistency on that team over the years, you're just going to know each other. You're going to move faster, et cetera. If you thought about a real estate transaction and you broke it down to like the 20 component parts, we have almost like an assembly line broken down all of those aspects. And by being able to see every situation that we look at, our environmental consulting group, they've seen every complex, nuanced environmental situation. And we've got a library of prior examples. And they're able to say, well, here's how we solve this in this sense. And we were able to get environmental indemnity insurance. We can just process and move so much quicker than others. Our physical consultants, that and the Blackstone team, I would sort of think of as the brain. But we've also got the arms and the legs. And the arms and the legs, in a lot of cases, are our existing portfolio companies that we own. So our industrial team might be in the field that is leasing industrial space every day. If we're looking at a new industrial opportunity, we're leveraging that team to say, okay, here's 100 assets spread across the US. We've got a team that covers the Southeast, a team that covers the Midwest, a team that covers California, a team that covers Texas. Let's take those assets in those markets, give them the addresses, get their thoughts in real time in terms of what rental rates are, and we sort of roll all that up to the brain of the operation. I do think we have sort of mechanized and systematized this due diligence process, and there's an enormous amount of consistency over the years that's been kind of finely tuned. So I kind of think about it as each year, we've got to tighten that machine up a little bit more to stay ahead of our competitors because others are watching what we do and how we do it. And we've got to keep tightening those screws. But there are certain functions that we might bring in house as a result, like insurance on real estate. We've got a team that's, that's all they do is price oh, interesting. insurance. Okay. We've got a team that all they do is focus on what are going to be the property tax resets 
in different jurisdictions when you buy a transaction. So those teams are like little SWAT teams. They all roll up their work product to the brain and then we analyze it, but can do that very, very quickly in these really large and complex situations. Okay. Now this is a data podcast. We're talking about data. (laughs) Real estate has typically really been a laggard in employing data, employing data science. How do you think that's going to change over time? Well, I think it's changing a lot. Blackstone brought in the head of data scientists from SAC a handful of years ago, and real estate really glommed onto him and said, hey, we've got such an amazing portfolio of assets that kick off so much data. How do we capture more of it? How do we elevate it in real time up to this sort of central nervous system that is our investment team and make quicker decisions? Because I think what sometimes gets lost is people think that, okay, well, industrial real estate is hot right now. What's new there? Well, nothing's new there, but what is new is what's happening today in the Inland Empire in California in terms of where rental rates are. And because of the supply chain crisis, rents are moving very dynamically. And if you have a really good real-time pulse on that, that can be really determinate. But what we brought in the data science team to do was also to sort of ask ourselves, what are all of the different forms of alternative data that we should be looking at that we're not looking at? And I could give you a number of examples, and you and I have talked about some of these over the years, but We've explored everything from geolocational data to truck traffic data on certain stretches of highway to get a better handle for logistics routes. We've scraped LinkedIn job posting data to understand in certain markets, job openings and unfilled positions. We've looked at office assets where there've been tenants that have a lease in place, but they're not occupying a lot of their space. And we'll do a backwards looking search on LinkedIn and see that you had 200 people that used to be employed within that company that changed jobs in the last year. Not a great indicator for the health of that tenant. There's a lot of things like that that are external sources of data that are non-traditional that we're trying to utilize. And then also looking at our own portfolio and saying, well, it's easy to capture and pull up what are happening to rents and what are happening to hotel occupancy rates and average daily rates. But are there sensors that we can put in certain places in our assets to get a better handle on the utilization or the throughput in different logistics facilities to understand how that space is really being utilized by our tenants? What else can we capture that would answer questions that would give us an ability to be a more decisive investor? And the other thing we do is we share a ton of information across different sectors. I mean, what's happening in industrial is informative elsewhere. What's happening in terms of migratory patterns for multifamily are informative to where employers may want to be. Netflix isn't going to Atlanta or Microsoft isn't going to Atlanta by accident. They're going to Atlanta because Georgia Tech graduates more diverse engineers than any engineering school in the country. And they're going to follow where that talent is. It's a big part of what we're trying to do. We're still getting better at it. The real estate industry, as you said, Oren, has definitely been slow to adopt here. And there's a lot of people that sort of are increasingly talking a big game that are not really doing that much when you peel back the onion. I think our secret weapon at the end of the day is really harnessing the data that comes off of our own portfolio. I mean, just to give you some statistics, to give you a sense of the scale of our business. I mean, today we own about 940 million square feet of industrial space on planet Earth. We own 227 million square feet of office We own 324,000 apartment units. We own over a thousand hotels. I mean, I could keep going. It's a huge portfolio. And you just think about the opportunity every day to capture information from your tenants, your customers, the employees that are coming in and out of buildings. I mean, that sort of thing. There's a real opportunity there to do a lot more. Blackstone has been one of the biggest residential home buyers over the past couple of decades have been incredibly successful. Recently, there's been these kind of new types of buyers, these iBuyers that are out there. Obviously, you have Opendoor, you have maybe ones that maybe weren't as successful like Zillow, where they exited the iBuying market. How do you see that evolving over time? I think you cannot be competitive in the real estate world if you are either solely guided by technology and data or completely ignoring technology and data. I think there needs to be an intersection. You, to, of, like, you still have to touch the dirt type of thing? or I think you've still got to touch the dirt. I think there's still nuances that as good as some of these iBuying algorithms are, there are still things that they miss or that can catch you off guard. I mean, I think the machines don't always pick up in real time. So you can't just shut your eyes 
and blindly follow the machines. I think Zillow got a little bit leaned in too much to the machines without the proper oversight. I'm a huge believer that technology can be an incredibly powerful tool to inform buying. And homes are very well suited to it because they tend to be, they're more, you're talking about smaller units, very large sample sets. And some of these algorithms are getting really good. I mean, in terms of very bespoke pieces of information, they're able to capture and pull and collate into their algorithms to price assets. I just think there needs to be some human oversight to that to make sure that something like a supply chain crisis gets captured in terms of, okay, well, how quickly can we renovate these homes? And those type of qualitative overlays that that are exogenous to a historical data set. So we're big believers in the intersection of the two. I mean, there's increasingly a lot of entrepreneurship in and around what people call prop tech. And I think the people that have been most successful are the people that have teams that bring to bear a traditional understanding of the nuances of how real estate operations and investing works with an A-plus technology team. And there's a humility that both are important to understand. You do need to understand in some cases the historical clunky way things were done because that still informs how people buy or it informs operations or it informs sort of what can from the outside seem to be kind of arcane. But you've also have to embrace technology. And I think we certainly have been leaning in in that regard as well to sort of say, okay, we cannot defend our market leading position if we are not also at the forefront of some of these technological or data innovations in our sector. One of the interesting things about these iBuyers to me is that they're really could be called iSellers. They're buying something and then they're trying to get it off the books within a couple months and then they make money basically on the spread. I mean, they're really flippers. Yeah. Really what they are. Well, I flippers. Say, yeah. Yeah. They're eye flippers. <laughs> I mean, I think in a lot of cases, again, they're providing. This is sort of one of the pitches we make. They're like market makers for stocks or something. They're market makers. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, they're providing speed and certainty to a seller. So you're a seller. You sit there and you're like, man, like I got to hire a broker. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do a bunch of tours. If somebody said, hey, listen. I may I, have to fix a couple of things in my house. They may retrade me, but here's a bid. You might sort of say, all right, it's 5% light of where I think I might be able to get, but this is pretty darn easy. I think the iBuyer business plan is in an upward sloping market, you buy 5% cheap to where the market is at that moment. You hold it for three months. In the last two years, home prices have been going up every day. Yeah. And maybe there's some things you have to fix to really improve it or the fixtures or et cetera. That's right. But if you mechanize that as well, you create the ability to do that in scale. You can sort of do that. I think what happened in Zillow's case was they weren't able to do a lot of the renovations as quickly as they wanted to because of some of the supply chain concerns. Therefore, they were holding some of these assets on their books for longer. They weren't able to move them as quickly. I still think they've done fine on the trade because you sort of had an upward sloping market, but I think it highlighted they probably were taking more risk than their investors thought in terms of sort of speculating on the direction of the housing market. Okay. Interesting. A couple of personal questions. I know Blackstone has been super successful. Obviously, you guys have raise tons of money, have all these LPs. You're also an LP in certain funds. Thanks for being in Flex Capital. How do you evaluate funds for you personally to be an LP in? I look for strategies and themes that are totally distinct from my day job and what I do. I've got real estate exposure coming out of my ears. So I look for <laughs> things that are, first of all, non-correlated to real estate. I put a huge premium on entrepreneurs and founders that I trust. When you're an LP, Almost by definition, you have no control. There's an enormous amount of confidence you're putting in somebody else. First and foremost, people that I trust explicitly. Things might not work out. There might be a lot of unforeseen situations to a business plan or a strategy, but they're not going to steal money from me. And then I think people that are transparent, that will be really clear about exactly what their strategy is, what they're trying to do. There's not a bunch of buzzwords and nothing to back it up. There's real substance to it. I sometimes get turned off by sometimes the slicker the marketing pitch, the more skeptical I get. And sometimes when the marketing deck is like not that sexy, I kind of <laughs> like, good, they're focused on strategy and they're not the slickest salespeople, but they really know their space well, like very targeted and very niche. Talking about flex capital, I mean, you guys had a very specific strategy with people that had deep expertise that were not in the business of trying to like 
raise a huge fund. You guys were really trying to figure out how do we bring our expertise to bear to generate outsized returns in a very narrow and tight niche. And you and I knew each other and I'd gotten to spend time with you personally. And I knew you cared a lot about what you did with a lot of intellectual curiosity that made it an easy choice. And again, the data space, I love that I'm on a data podcast as a real estate guy. I feel (laughs) incredibly underqualified to speak to your audience here. I'm sure they're listening to me like, why am I listening to him on a data podcast? But again, your business very uncorrelated with what I do, which made it attractive as well. Your marketing thing's interesting. Reminds me of Nassam Taleb, when he chooses doctors, he always chooses the least good looking doctor. (laughs) He figures they're going to probably be the best. One of the nice perks about your business is when you're doing due diligence, you probably get to stay at some really cool, interesting places. Like, What is one place that really stood out over the years that you went to? A number of years ago, the Amman chain of hotels, the brand was for sale. And we went and looked at a couple of those properties. And A, I wish we had leaned in and done the deal because what a unique luxury brand that is today. But a couple of those assets were pretty spectacular. Those were pretty fun due diligence. Is there a particular one? Because I know they've got all over the world where there a particular one you're like, this is just so special. I didn't get to go see the one in Utah, but the Amman and Turks and Caicos was pretty spectacular. Would certainly go back. But that, from a due diligence and a work trip perspective, was pretty special and a little more exciting than going and looking at sheds (laughs) in the suburbs somewhere. (laughs) Now, you come from a pretty big family. I think you've got three sisters and two brothers, if I remember that right. And your whole family is like super high performing. You've got like siblings who are state champions in different sports and stuff. What was in the water in the household when you guys were growing up? Was there something your parents did? And are you trying to like mimic that now in your life? I certainly think one of the best assets that was ever given to me was two amazing supportive parents and a bunch of siblings that I'm really close with. But I sometimes jokingly say to people that growing up in a big family is a little bit like growing up in the wild versus growing up in the zoo. <laughs> not to knock anybody that's a single child, but you grow up in a big family. It's not the zoo. It's a little bit of the wild west. You got to kill what you eat. Type of thing. <laughs> There's a lot of chaos you got to navigate through. My parents were there for us whenever we needed them, but they weren't helicopter parents. Kind of impossible when you have six kids. Impossible. I mean, it was the ultimate zone defense. And I think that created a lot of grit in all of us. It created an element of toughness. I think we all have very thick skin. We don't take a lot too personally. <laughs> I do find it ironic that in today's world where people are so darn sensitive about everything, We obsess over the smallest little mini micro issues. I'm not sure that environment is best to train people for the real world. I mean, the real world is messy. You've got to be able to navigate dealing with people that are different than you, that have different objectives than you, that aren't always going to be aligned with you. And I think growing up with five other siblings where you were forced to deal with all of that in a bit of a chaotic but very loving environment was, for me, great training. And I also was a lot less accomplished than my siblings growing up. It's certainly athletically speaking. So (laughs) I think I had a chip on my shoulder there and wanted to do something at a high level. And it certainly wasn't going to be anything athletic. (laughs) Is there anything you take to your own family now? I've got three little girls, so very young. And I think we're going to stop there. So I doubt we're going to have quite the wild west that was the Henry (laughs) family growing up. I think you got to let kids learn lessons on their own. You got to give them space to make mistakes. I think you can't helicopter parent. My goal is to love my kids, but to teach them how to think, not what to think, and let them be their own people. And really, I would say blow air into their sails, whichever direction they're excited about going on their own. I never felt like my parents pushed me to do anything in particular other than to try my best and to be authentic and try to maintain a good reputation. But I also, I never felt like my parents preached anything to me. They just, they themselves lived their life a certain way that for me was a great example. I think one of the big disconnects today among some parents, and I think it's a real challenge now thinking about being a dad myself, is that I think kids see through empty words really quickly. I think a lot of parents think you can preach one thing, but kind of live a different life And I think that comes across as really inauthentic to kids. And I appreciate the fact that my parents were never particularly preachy. They just lived their life a certain way. And I think we could sort of see from that that it was authentic. And I certainly hope to live up to that standard with my kids. It's a lot harder because it's very easy just to 
say things to your kids about what they should do and how they should live. I think the challenge to being a good parent is actually living and setting an example for them. That's a lot harder. Okay. Well, this is great. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think this is an answer to your question, but I remember my ultimate boss, John Gray, told me early on in my career, he said, deference is overrated. I'm a big believer in that. I think that and he was saying that, like, don't be deferential to him. He was your boss. Don't be deferential to me, that type of thing. I think he was saying, push the envelope. If you don't agree with your boss, if you don't agree with your teacher, if you don't agree with your politician, if you don't agree with your parents or you, whoever, I think there's a lot of people today who there's not enough challenging of the accepted narrative. And I think that there's too much kind of going along to get along. And it worries me a little bit today. I think, or one of the things I respect about you is you constantly are challenging kind of what is the accepted wisdom that's out there. I mean, it's no surprise. This is kind of your question. I think that again, maybe it's growing up in a big family and having to kind of constantly challenge and battle everybody. I really think that we should be encouraging young people and people in school to challenge the status quo, however uncomfortable that may be and debate it and argue issues, even sensitive ones earnestly and compassionately with an open mind and with an understanding that somebody else, what they might feel really passionate about, it might be entirely valid given their life experiences and your perspective, you might feel just as valid about, and it might make just as much sense to you given very different life experiences. But I think just in general, deference is overrated and being too sensitive is overrated. (laughs) All right. That's good. This is really good. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you, Tyler, so much for joining us on World of Death. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being the, again, most underqualified (laughs) guest speaker you've had on a data podcast, but happy to do it and appreciate you guys inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.